0: This week, I share how to make your characters far more interesting than you and I will ever be on Making Excuses. Welcome to Making Excuses, it's me, your host, Chase Carter. This is an audio diary journaling my experience of going back through the 10th season of the podcast, Writing Excuses. So yes, this is a companion podcast. I always recommend going and listening to the episode that corresponds with this one. And if you're a first time listener, it might behoove you to go back and listen to the first episode and make your way through the back catalog. Uh, we work on some homework assignments and, uh, you know, keep building on ourselves. So. If you want to get the full effect, you can do that. But uh, this will still have some advice that you will find helpful if you are a writer or in whatever you want to do. Uh, So this is the first episode of month two, focusing on characters. What do you mean my main character is boring? So I will talk about the advice that the crew gave us, then I'll go through the uh, writing exercise and talk about my experience with that. First though, let's cover some housekeeping. At the top, I think I want to go with a new release schedule. This is going to be coming out on Friday, the 27th of July, and I think I'm going to stick to that Friday schedule. Too many things happen during the weekend uh, that I tend to get Bogged up on Monday with other work tasks, and that puts me off from my uh, schedule. So I'd rather always do it on Friday and have the week to work on it than to promise on Monday and have something come up unforeseen, out of my hand, and that means you get an episode late. So I think Friday is a good thing to shoot for and what I'll be doing in the future. And if you uh, like to do some writing on the weekend, you'll have a companion there with you. I'll be there to give you some advice and we can talk uh, via the podcast. Also, I've done some thinking, and uh, I really think I want to move forward with the idea and the characters that I've developed so far with uh, Emery and Ergwev Tallwaters and Janine Hatch and that world—the world that's based off of uh, you know uh, people living in a park-ish environment, um, small people. But from their point of view, it won't be small people, and uh, we'll see where it builds from there. I fully expect all this to change, but since we're going forward into this, I needed something to revolve around uh, and to really focus on. We're outside of idea generation, so we need to pick one idea and move forward. So. If you've been following along, I would recommend that you pick one of your ideas that you've generated in the first month and really dedicate yourself to using it for the exercises in the podcast by all means, save the other ones. They're probably really good ideas guys. So save them and work on them later. Uh, and of course this is not a regimented thing. You are not uh, hard and fast married to this idea. So if you feel like something else comes up or you get a new innovative idea, there's a uh, nothing to holding you back from doing that. Also, I want to sort of talk about where I am right now in the podcast. This is my fifth week of doing it, and I've been really enjoying it, and I want to continue to get better. And what that means is I want to try adding in some like music effects, get better at editing, start to um, get better equipment to record with, you know, just try to make this a more enjoyable experience overall. I really enjoy podcasts whenever they uh, seem to be developed around not just enjoying it but also learning something both of those so i'm really focused on educating you guys uh, and myself at the same time but i don't know if i would call this a fun podcast at least as it stands right now so i want to get better at making it f- more enjoyable uh better to listen to and that means better quality um both audibly and uh me speaking um better music better effects and just uh you know some better ideas so stick with me uh, this is as much a learning experience as the writing is Um, but I hope to get there soon. Um, I also really want to start putting a lot of effort into building an audience to this podcast because I want you guys to help each other out. I want this to sort of be the campfire that we all uh, circle around at night so that we can share what we've learned and talk and get to know each other and build writing groups. I was part of a few writing groups in college and it was some of the best learning advice I ever got was from peers. Teachers, yes, the, t- the writing uh, professors I had in college taught me a lot about form, um, about like classical works, and about like really nitty gritty stuff. But you won't be able to find your voice unless you're in a writing group, I think. Because not only are you critiquing your own work, you're also editing and critiquing the work of others. And that opens you up to new viewpoints. You will learn things about yourself and others in the world and different forms of writing and different interests. It's too easy to get inside our own heads and we can either have a really big opinion of ourselves or we can be our own worst critics. And getting the input of others uh, helps keep us you know, humble or you know, appreciative of our own efforts. I'm trying to get a writing group started back up here in Denton currently, and uh, I'll keep you guys abreast of how that's going. But for right now, this uh, podcast is going to be like my writing group. So I hope that you continue to share with friends, uh, family, anybody you know who's interested, and uh, hopefully we can build a community together something i thought about and this is sort of a pie in the sky thing and i hope that we can get there is i want to have guests on and have like a conversation this is sort of a one-way conversation right now and i'm talking to myself a lot um with the hopes of you guys listening and i'm 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 okay with that i i've been teaching uh for three years at the university as a teaching assistant so i'm comfortable with lecturing but lecturing can only get you so far and i'd like to have another person on so that we can discuss things uh, so I'm going to try in the, in the future to get some people who wouldn't mind coming on and talking about their writing experience and what they might be able to offer. Uh, these are not going to be big people at first, unless I get really lucky and we break at some point, uh, but they will at least be writers. And so hopefully we can all learn together. So look forward for that in the future. And I just want to keep you guys really open to the process. Okay. And with that, let's move on to the discussion for this week. So this week, we started with characters. This is our first of a month. Next week, I think we're going to have a wild card episode, uh, but we got started with characters, and the discussion uh, jumped off with, how do you know that your character is boring? Well, a lot of times, your first character is going to be boring because this takes some practice. Um, we have this problem of, and I've seen it a lot in my writing, and I've seen it a lot in other people's writing when they're more in an amateur stage of their development, of the audience surrogate or what I like to call empty head syndrome. Now, you might have heard of an audience surrogate before, and this is a literary device that you can use. Um, I think I talked about it in a couple of podcasts ago, but you want an audience surrogate whenever you're introducing a wholly new world or... Um, Theme or some sort of like environment that you want the reader to feel like they're experiencing for the first time as well So you put a character that can act as that audience surrogate and all of the questions that the audience has all the wonder all the excitement is felt by The protagonist or the point of view character so that those feelings are mirrored. It makes it a more inviting experience the problem with that comes whenever That character becomes sort of an empty vessel, just a sort of window for everyone to look through, but they don't become a character of themselves. They're not a person, a three-dimensional being with wants and desires and conflicts and uh, idiosyncrasies and habits and all that sort of stuff that makes a person a person. You know, all the messy bits, all the, the, the contradictions and everything. So an audience surrogate can be a real problem, and this leads to what I call empty head syndrome, where you have a character with no inner thoughts, no monologue inside their head uh nothing that makes them do something that the audience might say like no 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 no, no, no. don't do that that's the wrong thing you know when you're watching a horror movie and everyone makes a bad decision at least they don't have an empty head syndrome they are making decisions albeit dangerous ones that probably will get them killed so we want our characters to do that we want them to throw themselves into conflicts because they have wrong-headed ideas or they're too stubborn or they're too naive or they're noble and get themselves killed i'm looking at you ned stark that sort of stuff where like you love this character for who they are but gosh they just keep getting themselves into trouble because of it that it's a good character when we struggle when we have strife within ourselves uh that means that the the author has done something good in fleshing out this character in three dimensions and that's what we want to go for too often you also have a character with unclear motivations they work through the plot they're sort of you know walking down the road of the plot but why are they doing it what drives that engine you know they bring up Harry Potter in his example and I think this is going to be fairly uh, unpopular but they're right Harry Potter as a character we're never sure what he wants What he desires, he does all the plot things, right, and he acts, and he also reacts on moments, but besides the few really meaningful connections, and yes, there are moments within the books where he does want things and we have desires, but overall as a character, he just wants to be a wizard, and so he goes to school, and he just sort of discovers all these things about the wizarding world. Now, when we talk about Hermione, we know what Hermione wants. She wants to be a great student. She wants to pass all her class. Well, not just pass all her class. She wants to excel and be the best student possible. She wants to learn things and know things and show people that she's smart. And that all of those things that I just said lead her to greatness, but they also lead to some very low character moments and they get her into trouble. So that's what I'm talking about. Flesh out who your character is and then see how those things that make your character a person are going to affect your plot and put them in certain situations. Howard put it really well, doing interesting things in interesting places and with interesting people does not make you an interesting person. It makes it like a fun... Disney interactive ride or whatever at like Universal Studios where you're on a track and you're just sort of like tracking through this thing and seeing all this stuff, like it's a wonderful world. You just go along the track, you're in the paces and you see cool things, but it's all laid out there. We know what's gonna be at the beginning and what's at the end. That interesting person has to make the cart jump off the rails. Um, They also talk about giving characters a deeply tortured past as something that amateur writers do when they wanna solve this problem of the empty head syndrome. That, you know, that deeply tortured past is a nice way to just give your character some depth and then you move on. Well, besides making really angsty D&D characters, the deeply tortured past has to mean something in the present plot. So your character, they use Batman as an example, has a deeply tortured past. His parents were killed in an alleyway. He had a fear of uh, uh, all this stuff of losing his parents, but he faced that fear and became the fear in order to clean up the city that he loves. And that tortured past comes back to haunt him quite often. It was kind of what drives him sometimes past the breaking point. So, that is a deeply tortured past working for the character. Now, you can't just have a character who had some trauma, and sometimes they relate back to the trauma, but it does nothing to affect the decisions they make in the present. Now, if a character makes a big decision based on past events in their own life, in their personal life, that tragedy or that trauma makes them decide something or do something or react in a way that is maybe illogical uh, objectively but is very logical given the nature of your character. If Batman turned himself in that would be the logical choice because he's a vigilante and the law needs to work but Batman believes that justice does not solve all the problems because of that deeply tortured past and so he chooses to keep putting on the cowl. That makes sense for Batman as a character. So have a deeply tortured past that's fine but don't let it be this sort of token thing that your character like wears on their, uh, their metaphorical lapels, but doesn't do anything with. Next they talk about um, accountability and responsibility. And they mention at the top as the way for your characters to actually mean something and be three dimensional. And we need to talk a bit about the difference between accountability and responsibility. Um, both of those are the sort of like the price they pay for what they want to get. And that price can be many things. It can be a mental price that they pay that causes them trauma or they have to face past trauma and get through it. It could be physical, where they are maimed or tortured or beaten up, or perhaps they lose a limb, lose an eye. Those are very popular in fantasy. Or it could be societal. They're outcast, or they lose a relationship. You know, they lose a partner. They uh, are estranged from their parents. They're estranged from their child because of a decision that they made. Those are stakes and accountability affecting the plot, and affecting the character. Um Again, this makes it so that your character is reacting and acting, but also it, your your reader will be a f- uh, invested in that character and the decisions they made. They'll be like, "Oh no, something bad happened. They didn't die." But as they say, um, it's a Pat Rothfuss quote that I really like. There are so many things that can happen to your main character that are worse than dying. Don't just kill off your characters. I know that's popular right now with the you know the hyperbolic Martin. Uh, Syndrome George R. R. Martin syndrome, where you just kill off the favorite characters, but there are so much worse things to do to characters uh, than kill them. Um, Mary did a good job of explaining the difference between stakes and accountability. She said stakes are sort of like your future risk, while accountability is a past promise that you need to fulfill. Put another way, the stakes are what your character wants, what your character needs, and so all their actions are going to be uh, pushing them towards what they want and need, and that raises the stakes of whatever they're dealing with right then and that accountability is more the price they wanna pay. So as an example here, um, you have a character who wants to reconnect with their family. They are estranged from their family for some reason and they want to reconnect with them. Uh, That's the stake. So all of their actions are going to be sort of balanced against reconnecting with this family, you know Maybe they have uh, this promise to protect a town that they're living in, but they have to make it back to their family Something happens in town There's this threat and they can choose to stay and fight which may cost them their lives or you know A lot of time or they can leave to go after their family because there's been a break in the case What does your character do in this in this scenario if they leave this town that they protected? That's going to affect their, uh, their reputation, and it's probably going to affect their mental state. They made this promise, and then they left, and they abandoned all these people. Well, if your character is the sort of person to hold that mental baggage around, now you have something to work with. You have this, this, uh, this trauma or this broken promise that's going to affect who they are as a character. Or if they choose to stay and fight, and they end up getting maimed or killed, how is that going to affect the promise that they made? The stakes have now changed, and they've lost something, and they're going to have to reestablish what they want uh, in this new state of mind. So, stakes and accountability. Think about both when your character is working through uh, the plot. Now, as they'll say later, what your character wants cannot be or should not be the main plot, but we'll get back to that. Let's talk about a little bit, before we get into the exercise, some of the things they said uh, that could help you fix your boring characters. So, The main way, and this sort of goes back to the deep and tortured past, is to have a past that haunts them in a way that disrupts or augments their quest. And this is the main difference. If that past trauma or that past abuse or that past mental, physical, something that happened, a tragedy, I'll just use tragedy in a generic term. If that past tragedy disrupts or augments the quest that they're on, the main plot that you've set them on, that's good. That's gonna bring up a lot of feelings and it's going to affect their relationships with present day characters and the present day plot and the decisions they're gonna make or even how they'll react to things if you put them in a reactive situation. They also said that it is interesting whenever your character doesn't fit the role that they have. Now this could be, you might have a character who is the mayor of a town or a governor or a king or something like that, but they act in a way that is different from the way a person in power would act. Perhaps they are a slovenly person who does not rule and is really lax in their rule, but it's for a very good reason, but they can't, they can't enunciate that reason. Or perhaps they are very uh, iron-fisted and very strong-willed, and they don't like take any care to make the people like them for a good reason. They're protecting the people against this dark threat. Or you can bring it down lower. Perhaps they are a flower salesman, uh, a flower peddler in the streets during the day, Um, but at night they go around and they uh, uh, are a thief or some sort of skulker or perhaps they are part of a secret gardening society that is keeping the world safe using uh, some gardening techniques Uh, and and all the flowers and trees you see in the town are actually uh, maybe a magical or some sort of biological barrier against evil and so the town at large can't know about this but your character of simple gardener is actually one of the the staunchest defenders of this village against the evil that that no one can see but them and their betters so see I mean unassuming characters uh, when they don't fit the role that have been assigned to them are very interesting and you can work with that that gives you a lot of room to write it Uh, They also harken back to an episode in Season 9 that I really loved when I listened to it. It's called The Three Character Sliders. And I would recommend, if you have some trouble with your characters, if they don't seem right to you, to go back and listen to that episode, and they have a great exercise. The three character sliders are proactive, one, two, likable, and three, competent. And the way these sliders work is that you need to like move them around to get a good mixture. You can't max out all three. If you have a character that is proactive, likable, and competent to the max, we call those a Mary Sue. Nothing bad happens to them. They get what they want. They always succeed and they never fail. Those are really boring characters. Don't have a Mary Sue. But you can move those those sliders around, and they they speculate that you can have two of the three close to the top. But the closer those two get to the top, it automatically moves one back down. So you can have a character who is proactive and competent, but that's not gonna make them very likable because they always succeed and they're always doing things. And they're probably gonna be at odds with your main character. If they are your main character, change that because they're probably boring. Uh, You can have a character who is likable and competent, but doesn't do anything. Or you can have a character that is uh, proactive and likable, but they're a bumbling fool. And that's a pretty, you know, uh, common archetype. You can also have a character who's very likable, very, very likable, but not proactive or competent. And that's going to make it a little difficult to make them likable, but it can work. So take those three sliders and move them around, do some finagling and see what you get out of there. I think it's a good way to visualize how your character uh, should act or react or how their uh, identity sort of plays out. Howard also says that if your character is a well-adjusted person, you don't always have to write the traumatic, tragic person. If they are well-adjusted in society, what you can do is put them in tragedy or danger in the present, so it's a uh, some sort of a conflict happens, and they just outright reject that. They say, nope, that is not how my world works. I'm turning a 180 and walking away from all this. And their rejection might kick off a conflict. That's an interesting way to kick off conflict. You might have someone... I wrote a, I wrote a story idea at the beginning about a dad who has magical kids and what he does in that situation when he finds out his kids are magical. Well, one of the things he could do is say... Mm-mm. no my kids aren't magical and he does everything in his power to keep the weird things that happen around his kid a secret this is sort of a more innocent version of what the Dursleys do at the beginning of Harry Potter where they try to take Harry they even take him out to a seaside shack and Hagrid finds him nonetheless now think about a um, a story written from the Dursleys point of view but they're much more likable characters and they have a good reason for rejecting this worldview um, I had a single dad in my story, so perhaps his uh, wife was also magical, and she, because of her involvement in the magical society, died. And the way he's reconciling the trauma of losing his wife is he's keeping his kids out of that because deep down he's afraid that the same is going to happen to them. And so he does everything in his power to keep them out of that. That's a pretty good allegory for what happens to some people in the real life. Bum myself out. Yeesh. Okay, but see? That works. Now we're feeling our characters, and we already have emotions and investment. So do that. That's a really good idea. Howard, you did a great job. I like that. Um, You can also uh, think about your character's gender, their ethnicity, and their job and their hobby, and how that's going to affect them, but with a few caveats that I think are really important to talk about. First, your story doesn't have to be about your character's gender and or ethnicity and or job or hobby. Those can be things about your character, but your book doesn't have to be uh, become about those things singularly. They talk about how they get a lot of questions about that. Um, and they can be things about your characters without being the, the book itself. Now, by all means, if you wanna write a book about gender, if you wanna write a book about race, if you wanna write a book about a certain job or hobby, by all means, focus your work on that if that's what you wanna do. Uh, we'll probably talk later on about doing just that. But you can always include those things like you can have a main character who is transgender without the book becoming about being transgender. Now, in the current political climate, that's probably going to be a big thing that a big talking point about your story. But you can have other things. You can have other themes and motifs. You can have other things that happen. You can have a, a character that is genderqueer or asexual or any of the other spectrum of sexuality or gender that exists and that we're just now coming to accept as a you know society. I think we need a lot of fantasy and sci-fi novels that embrace those in popular culture. These things have always sort of exist, and I know that there is a really troubled past, especially in sci-fi, about gender and sexuality. Uh, fantasy doesn't get off great either, but I think we need some more positive... Uh, representation of those things. So if you want to write about those, if you think that speaks to your experience and you want to write about that, please do not feel afraid to put those in your book without making it the main thrust of your book. Um so yeah, we'll can of worms that move on and talk about that later. Um one last thing about how to fix your characters is that if a character and I sort of prefaced this before, if your character wants the thing that they're questing after if that's like their motivation if that's their stakes and accountability as well as the main quest you're going to have a one-dimensional character that's like a horse with blinders on if you're like i mentioned a character who wants to reconcile with his family and the whole book is about reconciling with his family It's going to be a boring character. Oftentimes when you have those sort of protagonist or point of view characters, what a writer will do is give them some sort of other trauma that they're dealing with. Perhaps something happened that kicked them off on this quest. And now they have to think about, did they do it for the right reasons? What's going to happen when they get back there? They start imagining all these other scenarios, like, and maybe something happens that impedes them and gets them off. And then the plot quest Or the plot becomes about getting back on that track to achieve their goals. It can be difficult, and that's uh, something that you need to be more. I think you need to be a little bit more experienced with to deal with is having a character who is questing after the same thing that they deep down want. That's about their identity. So be careful about that. I think starting off, if you're building some new characters, if you're just uh, getting into this, don't do that. Give them give them an identity that is outside of the plot. Okay, let's move on to the homework. So uh, the exercise this week was to take three different characters and we're going to walk them through the same scene. We want to try to convey their emotional states, their jobs, and their hobbies without directly stating any of those things. And we'll see how successful we are in the scene of conveying those. So we're going to have to use context clues, dialogue, the way that they react to things or the way that they describe things. Uh, The scene in question is going to be walk them through a marketplace and they have to do a dead drop. And if you're not sure what a dead drop is, that's where you have a package or an item and you need to put it in a location. Don't give it to, uh, you're not exchanging it with a person, but you're getting it to a location without anybody noticing. This is a, this is a really important uh, trope in the spy novels, as Mary said. So, let's see how I did. She still didn't understand why she must do this in broad daylight. It was the busiest part of the afternoon, and the market shoppers flowed by her in a river of dyed cloth and produce. She leaned against the side of an orange vendor stall, hoping her pose, at least, conveyed a sense of belonging. This was nothing like the cat's paws and cut purses in her stories. They snaked around on rooftops and into windows left ajar in the middle of the night. They were one of countless other shadows populating a sleeping world where none marked their comings and goings. Their only obstacles were dozing guards under a street lantern or the occasional stray dog snuffing refuse in an alley. She was surrounded by sounds and smells and eyeballs. Green. God, she couldn't stop noticing all the eyes. How did her parents expect this to work? The statistical probability that just one person would notice her actions made Emery's stomach wring itself like wet laundry. Luckily, the midday heat masked the nervous sweat she dabbed from her forehead with the green scarf. Bright green, she thought sourly. I'm wrapped top to toe in the audacious colors of a child's finger paints. Her skulking storybook thieves would never dare mark themselves with such. Hey, girl! Emery jerked herself upright at the orange vendor's sudden words, choking down a surprised yelp. If you're determined to stand there all day without buying anything, at least make yourself useful. He tossed a piece of fruit at Emery, and she hurriedly shuffled the wrapped package beneath her robes in order to catch it. She looked from the orange to the weathered face of the man questioningly. Have a bite, and try to like look like it's the tastiest damn thing this side of the Grass Lake. "'Like it keeps the heat from touching you. "'I sure ain't appetizing enough to draw in customers. "'Maybe you will be.' "'He waved away the coin she proffered "'and stared expectantly. "'Emory shrugged and turned back to face the shuffling crowds, "'happy to turn her attention to something besides her dreaded task. "'She plucked at the rubbery skin of the orange for a time, "'but her freshly trimmed nails couldn't seem to find purchase.' Reaching into one of the many pockets sewn into the interior of her yellow robes, Emery produced a slim scalpel that gleamed when it caught the harsh light overhead. Better a tool for many jobs, her father was wont to say. She smirked and delicately punctured the flesh near the stem, rotating her hands as the piece of razor-sharp metal traced the fruit's diameter. She then cut a second line perpendicular to the first, allowing the skin to be peeled off in neat quarters. Looking up, Emery saw the fruit merchant eyeing her with suspicion, his brow furrowed thoughtless, she said to herself, chiding how brazenly she had whipped out the tool, to weapon, perhaps, to some. Distraction from her task had let Emery slip into the habits of home, where everyone remarked on what she only saw as pragmatic logic. Then a thought struck her. Act like you belong. Emery could be simply one more bright color in the market's ever-shifting rainbow. Shadows were for thieves and rakes, but she needed to be nothing more than a browsing local. So she took a hefty bite, trying not to mind the juice that round down her chin and entered the current. All right, so that was Emery walking through the dead drop, and I got quite into it and didn't make it all the way to the dead drop, but we still, I think, cover all the things that we needed to. So we know her disposition, her emotional state. She's worried right she's ca- she's cautiously worried that she's not going to be able to do this she's also a little frustrated that this was set to her in any anyways she's not fit for this sort of work do we know her job i didn't do such a great job here now uh from past readings you probably know that Emery is an academic hopefully that comes across in some of her more uh medical language sort of sterile and she's also got a higher diction in a lot of case- cases when especially when she's talking to herself Uh, But she also whips out the scalpel as a cutting tool. Where a lot of people have, you know, a pocket knife or maybe a small blade that they use to cut things like this, she has a scalpel, which marks her as at least someone uh, adjacent to medicine and academia, you know, the physical sciences like that. So uh, hopefully that helped uh, get across her job. As far as her hobbies, I didn't really touch on that too much. That's a hard one to do in a scene like this. Um, We'll have to see if I can work on it in the other readings. But in any case, I think this is an okay uh, reading. I noticed whenever I was writing this that Emery is, I think, a boring character for a lot of the reasons that they discussed. We're not sure what she wants, right? She's interesting in the respects that she has interesting qualities about her. She's not a usual character. But we don't know what she wants. We don't know what she's driving towards. And so I think that leaves her feeling a bit two-dimensional. She needs to go back to the workshop, and we'll work on it in the future, but um, for now, let's move on to the second reading. The market reeked. Sure, part of that was the sweat of too many bodies and the refuse piled just beyond sight. Those, Urgway found, were common to all cities of a certain size. People apparently had better things to do with their time than shit in the proper place. No, this market reeked with too many smells. The air assaulted her senses constantly, and every ten-foot stretch of stalls and blankets and carts had its own individual weapon to turn against her. At present, it was citrus tang and the warning bite of cooked peppers clashing with the pungent musk that could only belong to the spiteful breed of pack-beast Urguay had rode into town on. The sooner she could drop this pack in Jamie on the other side of the grass lake, the better. This market, with people packed like sheep in a pen and making just as much noise, was the very opposite of Tallwaters and nearly every other town on her native side of that endless expanse of green. There, homes and shops were built with design, with purpose. They allowed for roads and gardens and future expansion. But here, structures seemed to sprout from each other like tumorous growths, with no heed to its neighbor. It reminded her of a fungus, and it disgusted her sensibilities. Focus, she thought. Drop the goods. Get home. Every spare moment on her journey, not spent wrangling her stubborn mount, Urguay had thought on the source of this job. The woman had been wearing too much jewelry, a sign of excess wealth spent with frivolity, but she had assured Urguay would be pointed towards the information she sought upon a successful return. She thought the woman had expected Urguay to ask questions about the package or its recipient, but she had simply nodded and set out. Work done today assures rewards tomorrow. Urgway frowned as a familiar face rose from the smoke of her memories. She blinked it away and shook her head. Where was her reward for all the days of work, she wondered. She rubbed sand from the corner of her eyes and pressed further through the throng. Five minutes later, Urgway spotted her target. The butcher's stall was fairly busy, and the stout woman behind it was accepting coins for wrapped packages curiously similar to the one in Ergway's pack. <laughs> that was smart. Urgway approached with purpose, not letting her eyes drift and wander like some in the market. Pickpocket surely already had them marked as easy targets who would not miss their purse with all the other sights to behold. So, it was a surprise when she nearly bowled over two small figures. Instinctively, one of her hands tightened around her pack while the other pressed for her purse against the pocket of her thigh. But the children in front of her had eyes only for something else entirely. "'Your weapon,' breathed a boy. His eyes wide and his mouth pricked with a gleeful smile. He pointed towards Arguez's belt, from which dangled a steel head axe. It's... that's not a sword at all. I told you, Bet. It's one of them tools used to cut down trees. The other boy's eyes were narrowed and appraising, as if looking closer would magically transform Ergway's axe into a familiar shape. Uh, okay, you got me. It ain't no sword. But you don't get my bits. Mom said they were mine to spend on whatever I wanted, and besides, I didn't really mean it when I took the bet. The other boy was about to retort when a short woman wrapped in three distinct shades of orange grabbed them both hard by the shoulder. "'Pardons be your shade, ma'am. I truly don't know how they get away from me so easily. You'd think they were little wind spirits by all the mischief they cause.' She smiled tightly, and Urgue knew it was the courteous mask of a mother which hid the wrath that her children would suffer later. Urgue nodded politely and moved on as the boys puffed out their cheeks and began blowing in each other's faces and yelling about wind spirits. Children were identical in every part of the world, as were their tired mothers.' Ergwe smiled at that, remembering the mortal fear in the eyes of Hidney's three girls when they were found by their mother painting dogs and cats on the side of the mayor's house. Then, in her mind, that same house erupted into flames, and the faces of the painted animals were twisted into horrific, gnashing creatures. Ergwe bit her cheek hard and tasted salty blood, but the sounds of the market slowly returned. The task at hand and nothing more. Answers only ever lie ahead of you. When she was finally able to reach the butcher behind her stall, Urgway pulled out the package and cleared her throat. throat) Apologies be your shade, but this package contains goat meat. I once owned a goat, and he was a dear companion. I cannot bring myself to eat it. The line practiced so often at camp sounded stilted, and her smile felt wooden. The long-suffering look the butcher aimed at her convinced Urgway of her lackluster performance. Still, she took the package in exchange for a small bag strung tight. Its inconsequential weight made Uruguay grit her teeth. Not coins, nor anything of metal. The alternatives made her wanted to run arrow-straight for the nearest caravan out of town. Instead, she patiently thanked the woman and walked to the side of the stall so that she could ferret her new belonging into a hidden compartment stitched into the bottom of her pack. Only then did Uruguay allow herself a breath of small, silent relief. One trip down, one to go. She almost prayed to somebody that her beast would at least smell better this time. All right, so that was the second scene, this time with Uruguay of Tallwaters, a character from last time. And I like this one a lot better. I think Uruguay is a lot more interesting a character, and it comes across almost immediately. The way she views the world is different from a lot of people, and not in a forced or very conscious way. She notices different things. She notices the way the buildings are built on each other, and she comments on it. Cause she's a carpenter. She's a builder. She's a city planner of a sort for a small town. And so that's, these sort of things make her feel disgust. So that's something to take. Um, you shouldn't have a character that only comments on it, but it should elicit some emotional response. So if your character likes, say, birds, they shouldn't just notice that there are no birds in the town, but it should make them feel sad that this town doesn't have any birds in it, or maybe worried that something is wrong because there's no birds. And that could be something that other characters in the story don't notice and so their special qualities help them to pick out the danger but in this case we have Ergwe noticing the buildings she also is a hardened person we get from this you know she's gone through some troubles and that uh, comes across with how she deals with strangers as soon as those kids pop up she immediately goes to collect, collect her belongings or protect them she doesn't go for her weapon but she goes to protect the things that are important to her task We also know that she is, you know, suffering this journey for something important. There's something that's driving her. She needs some information to discover something, and that's what's affecting the plot and the decisions that she's making. Uh, So we know her state of mind. It's, you know, determined but exasperated. Do we know her job? Well, the one clue we have is that she has a woodcutter's axe on the belt, but she also comments on the buildings and how they were placed. So from that, we can probably get that she is a carpenter, a builder. Again, as for her hobbies, we don't get a lot of that again i'm really finding that hard to convey in a scene perhaps if we were somewhere where they were doing a leisure activity instead of a market with a dead drop but i also didn't really send her shopping ergue didn't come across as a character that would be interested in shopping to me so but this third character i think will so let's go ahead and read the third one and this is going to be uh the older retired soldier janine hatch here we go Janine thought of what her old friends would say to see a former squadron leader smuggling goods in some dusty town on the edge of the grass lake. It made her laugh softly behind the silk kerchief wrapped around her mouth. The trader had argued Janine would stand out dressed in all gray. She had insisted on the color and turned on anything close to bright or vibrant. In response, she had merely spread her arms wide so that the sweaty little man could fully appreciate all six and a half feet of her. Janine stood out everywhere, regardless of color. At least the local children at home had grown accustomed to her and no longer gawked like birds here she watched them pull from their mothers and fathers to chase around her like leaves caught in a whirlpool they laughed and skipped and yelled in a language in which she only knew the necessities food dice and fuck off the last bit translated roughly to dipping one's privates in the mouth of a camel in all fairness janine didn't mind as big as she was most pickpockets and urchins never tried their luck and the bold or stupid ones swiftly learned a valuable lesson. Her swirling collection of runts also helped part the mass of people crowding the main market thoroughfare. Smart travelers in a foreign land did two things. Be the locals, and trust the locals. If a certain alley seemed oddly deserted, even though it would circumvent a crowded street, wisdom attests it is empty for a very good reason. Same with an empty bar. Either the beer or the company is piss poor, and Janine wanted to deal with neither. Luckily, her business a day kept her in the thick of the market and out of the darker corners. She bought a skewer of peppers and meat, the latter of which she could only surmise as gamey, marveled at a set of bone dice and lead with flecks of jade, and haggled with the desiccated corpse of a man over a piece of red fruit the flies had yet to infest. Once she was full of banter and food, Jeanine eyed the butcher's stall that was her mark. A handsome woman who looked readily able to handle herself in a spar stood chopping bits of dried jerky into long strips. Janine nodded curtly and took a step into the mingling crowd when a hand grabbed her tight around the arm. That was a mistake, she thought. With a death twist, she had her mystery assailant's wrist in her own clutches. She then drove it upwards hard as she turned, letting the momentum of them both spin the man, and any weapon he might be brandishing, back down the alley behind the fruit stall. With a yelp, he hit the sandstone wall of a building, and Janine pressed her own body tight against his mass, pinning him. You have whatever air is left in your lungs to explain what possessed you to lay a fucking hand on me before I paint this home a bright new shade of crimson, she hissed. The man's gorge warbled before he spoke, his words paper thin. Janine, gods, it's it's me. Hardy from the tenth. Gods, my fucking wrist. Janine leaped back, struck by the man's words like a whip. Hardy? Last I remember, your helmet wouldn't fit on that bean head of yours. How long has it been? Ten, maybe eleven years. He was rubbing his wrist tenderly, though Jeanine knew she hadn't broken it. The man before her looked something like the Hardy she remembered. Perhaps his father? What was once the frame of a pitchfork had filled out impressively, and a rough yellow beard covered the boy's still soft features. Yes, now that she could study him, this man could be none other than the boy recruit of the Tenth Capital Peacekeepers, Edgin Hardy Bosch. Hail, Captain, Hardy said, snapping a weary salute. The gesture made Janine wince and shake her head. God's boy, I'm sorry for roughing you up. The fuck you doing grabbing an old woman from behind like that? He suddenly looked a little abashed and unable to meet her eyes. Well, the thing is, I saw you and... He trailed off, stopped, then looked hard into the dirt. He swallowed twice, and Janine knew the boy was picking the right words before he spoke again. "'There's something going down here, Captain. Big. Dangerous. I'm in the shit of it, but I swear I had no idea. I've been rounding up some folk here, loyal and arrow-straight. That's when I saw you in the crowd.' He looked amazed even as he spoke, his eyes full of an admiration Janine hated to see again. "'Well, I had to catch you, Captain. We need help, and I can't think of anyone better suited for the work before us.' And what gives you the idea that I, a retired and maimed old woman, would spoil my vacation to play thug with your stupid lackey friends? She knew the words were cruel, but a part of her felt strangely hurt that just seeing Hardy had dredged up long-forgotten pains. Hardy looked straight at her, bearing down like the boy a decade younger telling her all he'd ever wanted was to protect his city. It's the kids, Captain. Slaver's been rounding them up off the streets and selling west. Local militia ain't doing shit and I can't figure out why. They need us. Need you. Janine's hand went beneath her gray robes to fidget with the wrapped package. Shit. Okay, so that was Janine Hatch running through the market dead drop, which she was not able to complete because something happened. I liked writing this scene the most, and it's partly because I do like more crass characters. They are easy to f- easier to flavor. I got to make sure I don't make them one-dimensional or lean on it too thick because it can come across a little hackneyed. Um, And hopefully Janine didn't come off that way, but um, I really want to flavor her as someone who is, you know, pragmatic enough to have some common wisdom and how to deal with the world, but she's lacking a few social graces. She was a soldier. She was not used to dealing with people in social situations. She was used to people following orders or following the orders of other people. And that flavors someone's interactions, I think. So when she runs into an old person, it brings back a lot of memories, and now we can see that that sort of, like, rough, gruff, uh, sarcastic nature is hiding a lot of pain. And, yeah, she does talk about her pain a little bit, but she masks it as, like, a physical pain, a bit disappointment, but there's something deeper there. There's something that she hates being referred to as a captain, even though she wishes that she was still in the service, still serving the capital, so... There's a lot to go on there. So, do we know her disposition? Yeah, it's first sarcastic and, you know, ready to get the job done, confident. And then it's shaken and then finally resolved to something she wasn't ready for. Do we know her job? Yeah, she explicitly states it. I know that's a no-no, but she's a soldier. They don't dance around it, and I think that she's a proud one at that, and she kind of, you know, does a lot of remembering of the better glory days a lot. So I think that fits her character. And do we know her hobbies? Well, so I tried to work that in while she was shopping because I didn't send any other characters uh, out actually shopping into the market except for the orange that was thrown at Emery. So she does a little bit of browsing around and she really admires a set of dice. I think she has a gambling problem. And uh, maybe later on we see that she might go back and stiff-arm the guy for some dice or maybe steal it from him or something or she might run into some dice later that gets in her trouble. But I did want to give some clues that she does like to gamble in her spare time and you know, it gets the better of her so I really like using uh, the past traumas, the past tragedies to flavor the way your characters uh, affect a situation or how they act in a situation Uh, and I think I did that best with both Uruguay and Janine I still gotta work out Emery she's a bit too young and naive to really come across that way, Uh, perhaps she's gonna be the best one to like do a 180 reject of a new worldview. that might be an interesting way to go about it but all the advice that the crew gave, uh, I think, are really great. So we're already going pretty long, so I'm going to stop right there. I know this episode came out a bit late, so you get an extra long episode to deal with it. So if you liked your writing, always feel free to send it in. I might post it on Twitter or post it on the website for other people to read. Or if you just want to share it with me privately, that's cool too. I'd love to see what you guys came up with this exercise. Um, you can find me on Twitter at chasewrites. Uh, You can also go to my website, chasewritesthings.com. I host all the episodes there as well as all the other writing that I do. It's been busy, so I haven't updated the site in a bit, but hopefully that will change very soon. I got some things in the work. Uh, Also, um, if you are friends with me on Facebook, I'm just Chase Carter. I share things there. Um, Facebook is kind of a really nice way to build a community because so many people use it, so by virtue of that. But also, uh, there's interesting tools for connecting with people there. So if you want to connect with me on Facebook, always feel free to send me a message. Uh, I'm happy to talk with people. Um, Share this with your friends, family members, anybody you think might like the episode. And also find me on iTunes. Give me a rating and a review. Uh, and subscribe. That's a great way to get this out to other people so that they can see it whenever they search for writing podcasts, and hopefully it'll help them out the way it's been helping me out. So that'll be it. Uh, next week, we got a wild card episode, and then we'll get back to characters. So until then, have a good one, and happy writing.